The edition is sponsored by Charles Stanley, one of the UK's leading wealth managers, providing bespoke investment management and financial advice. Find out more at charles-stanley.co.uk. Hello and welcome to The Edition, The Spectator's weekly podcast discussing some of the most important and intriguing issues within our pages, with the writers behind them. I'm Cindy Yu. This week, as post-pandemic life seems that little bit closer, is it time to rethink our relationship with China? We also talk about the long-term impact of the Dominic Cummings affair, even if he doesn't go himself. And last, what is the etiquette for working from home when you can hear your neighbours on their conference calls? First up, in this week's cover piece, James Forsyth writes about the determination in the Conservative Party to change the British relationship with China. It is a desire, in short, to reduce dependence. James joins me down the line now, together with Sir Oliver Letwin, former Cabinet Minister and head of the World Ahead programme at the Legatum Institute, which looks at the rise of India and China. So James, can you first tell us what it is that the government is thinking about and why now? Well, I think this is a result of the coronavirus crisis, but it's not because the virus first seemed to flare up in China. It is because it has shown them in two ways the issues with the UK's dependence on China. First of all, the UK simply does not have enough ability to manufacture things like personal protective equipment in this country. And secondly, they've seen how this is not a normal trading relationship. But they've seen how they've been constantly reminded that don't say this now or don't say that now, because if you do, these shipments of personal protective equipment will dry up. Now, if you had a trading relationship with an EU country, Japan, the US, Canada, any other liberal democracy, you wouldn't be in a situation where criticism of a government would lead to those supplies on which you are dependent not coming. And I think that has made them realise that this is a dangerous situation. And that uh, the China of President Xi is very different from the China that Oliver, David Cameron and George Osborne were dealing with in 2010. And that the UK therefore needs to reduce its dependence on China. Because as China's behaviour towards Australia shows, China will try and use economic ties to bully countries into geopolitical submission. Oliver, what do you make of this new direction on China? Well, I think you, you have to distinguish between various different things. I mean, the point that James is making about the dependence on supply chains in China, or well ratted, I think, actually, anywhere in the world, is a perfectly sensible point. I don't think that either we or any other serious country should expose itself to the position of over-reliance on a single source supply of any critical item. And that means either diversifying supply chains or replicating them ourselves and doing doing more ourselves, which anyway, in any respect, is a sensible thing to do. So, so far as that goes, uh, um, I've no quarrel to pick with this at all. I, I don't think that China is more than a significant example of this genre. And actually, I'd be quite worried about what Trump might do on supply chains, for example, as well. So I, I don't think that that this is a sort of specifically Chinese thing. I do think the Chinese are very mercantilist. They're, they're, they have a system of, uh, which is somewhat like an Elizabethan monarchy. It's a high degree of state capitalism, highly organized, highly regulated, and highly directed towards Chinese 
ends. We shouldn't delude ourselves. There are many other countries that try to do this too, but China is very powerful, economically very important, and therefore being not too dependent on it is very sensible. But there's a subtext here, which is that actually what's going on at the moment is obviously exaggeratedly in the case of President Trump, but amongst many other people in Washington as well, and now increasingly in the UK and indeed to some degree in Europe, the rest of Europe, continental Europe, there is a sort of shift which doesn't just say what James was saying, which as I say, insofar as it goes, is I think perfectly sensible, but moves on to suggesting that somehow or other we are going to be locked in mortal combat with China as China and the United States struggle for world hegemony. And that, I think, is a very, very dangerous development, incredibly dangerous, the most dangerous thing that's happening in the world at the moment by some distance. And I think we have to be extraordinarily careful not to get ourselves into the position where, because we don't happen to share the view that President Xi and his colleagues have of how to run a country, so to speak, we don't run our countries the same way that he runs his country, we mustn't allow that to become a basis for supposing that we can't do sensible business and conduct a peaceful relationship and have considerable amounts of trade and economic exchange with China. We can and we should and we must if we're to avoid conflict, which is incredibly important for our children and grandchildren. Oliver, how long is that conflict avoidable? I mean, China is a rising power. It's so far not been an issue because it hasn't been in a position of aiming for world hegemony. But surely that is inevitable. And at that point, conflict, whether cold or real war, will happen. Well, I think that is a very dangerous and very mistaken thesis. I don't actually think that the last 4,000 years of Chinese history, bar a brief period under the Yuan dynasty with the Mongol invasions, shows any sign of China seeking global domination in the sense in which, for example, the Nazis did in Germany or the Soviets did in uh, the Cold War period. I do think that China has very, very strong interests, both historically and present, in controlling its own backyard, trying to control not just the core of China, but the periphery of China to ensure uh, security. And there's no doubt at all that through uh, both mercantilism and uh, increasing uh, naval and military power, China intends to uh, have a very significant influence that it thinks is its due and indeed believes corrects uh, 250 years of Western hegemony, imperialism and mercantilism. And so there are, there are, there are tensions. The whole secret here is how we manage those tensions in a world which is very ill-constructed to do so. We have an international rules-based order which was invented by essentially uh, America, the UK and France at a time when uh, India, for example, was part of of the British Empire. And it's not a system which is good at the moment at dealing with those tensions. And we have populism uh, rampant in uh, many uh, governments around the West which uh, is not looking for what it needs to look for, what governments around the West need to look for, which is accommodations and relationships, which while we have our eyes wide open to the Chinese pursuing their interests, which they certainly will do, uh, nevertheless allows us to find resolutions to tensions rather than tensions turning into conflicts. I feel we are at the moment in a position horribly similar to the late 19th century. I don't think it's just Henry Kissinger imagining that. I think that is actually, if you take a long, hard, look at it where we roughly are and we need to avoid the sequel 1914 was not a good moment in the world's history 
James, I suppose in your piece you say that we don't want to go full Trump on this when when the British government says reduce dependence, as well as just getting our own sufficiency in terms of medical supplies. I suppose one of the most immediate tests of this policy is Huawei. Do you think that there will be a U-turn on what the government has already decided, i.e. to involve Huawei but with a cap? I think there will have to be a U-turn in that the parliamentary numbers are simply not there for the policy anymore. I think if the government continued with it, it would almost certainly lose the vote in the House of Commons now. I think the last week has shown that the days when the Tory backbenchers were kind of disciplined lobby fodder is, is long gone. I think the Huawei thing is, is an issue because, again, this is the challenge of dealing with China, which is Chinese companies, and I think it's quite clear in the case of Huawei that it is, are essentially arms of a Chinese state in a way that the vast majority of Western companies are not. And I think inviting China to participate in building your 5G network puts you in a position of dependency on a country that has, as it is demonstrating in Australia right now, shown a willingness to use its economic clout to try and pressure countries into taking geopolitical positions that China wants them to. So I don't think Huawei is sensible. You know, the government talks about wanting a sustainable and reciprocal relationship with China. Even if there was a UK company with the expertise to build something as sensitive as China's 5G network, I find it very hard to imagine that the Beijing government would allow that to happen. I suppose the counter-argument to that, James, and to this entire policy is just how expensive it will be to reduce dependence. You know, there's a reason we go to Huawei is because it's the cheapest alternative and ripping it out, some estimates put it at £7 billion. And then other things of reducing independence, you know, whether it's funding for our universities or business contracts, it will be expensive. At a time of pandemic recession and possibility of a no-deal Brexit, you know, is this a good idea to be going for something like this? And do you see that determination to go through with this policy maybe being eroded when the economic realities come forward? No, you are undoubtedly right. Look at the kind of rebuilding of the UK post the 2008 financial crash. Chinese cash has been used to plug gaps. And it has plugged gaps that things like Hinkley Point, would they have been possible without that Chinese money? It's highly doubtful. I think there is a question, though, which is this Chinese money comes with strings attached. And I think that the cost of taking it is simply too great. It's not like an investment from the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund. It is a China will use these ties to advance its geopolitical agenda and being wide-eyed about that means you've got to resist that. I think there's also a kind of, there's a kind of genuine question here about, again, reciprocity. You look at the influence that China has in British universities, it's quite hard to imagine that the Chinese government would be relaxed about the British government having the kind of influence in Chinese universities that China has here. And I totally take Oliver's point about you do not want to end up in a kind of war by railway timetable situation. But I also think that you cannot be blind to the fact that Britain benefits from the liberal democratic order. And it is quite clear that while well, as a decade or so ago, you could say that China seemed happy to coexist with that order. It is clearly less comfortable with the idea of coexisting with it now than it was before. Well, I think the danger here is mistaking one thing for another. I don't actually share James's view about the uh, specific issue of Huawei, but that's a very particular issue which uh, 
involves all sorts of technical discussion and park that for a moment because it's a very specific issue. I do accept James's general point that we have a highly mercantilist state here, which uses its companies to advance national interests as well as their own company commercial interests. I don't think that's nearly as unusual in the world as James was suggesting. I think many American companies operate in much the same way. And actually, if we're honest about it, there are some UK companies that we would like to operate in the same way and do operate in the same way to a degree as well. And certainly the Germans and the French do it enormously. So mercantilism is not just a Chinese phenomenon. And nevertheless, it is a Chinese phenomenon. Saying we have to be wary about them is very different from assuming that the US agenda is just an agenda about ensuring reciprocity and open economies on both sides and genuine free trade. It is not. The US is also, especially under its present leadership, enormously mercantilist and aggressive and seeks to maintain hegemony. It's partly in response to what's happened in China. It's partly actually in response to the fact that the US is no longer the overwhelmingly dominant superpower of the single polar world. We're now entering multipolarity. China and increasingly in due course India will be contestants for top dog status. And we have to beware any set of, of measures that means we get dragged into what is superpower conflict rather than sensible precautions to make sure that we're sufficiently resilient and self-sustaining so that we're not overly dependent on anyone, including, certainly, the Chinese. Speaking of one of those precautions, James, you float the idea some in government have been thinking about of a D10 alliance. Can you tell us what that is? So the idea of that is that you take the G7 and then you add to it South Korea, India and Australia. And the thinking goes that one of the ways in which Chinese influence has expanded so rapidly is it is able to offer developing countries, for example, cheap, reliable mobile phone networks constructed often by Huawei at a very low rate. And the idea of a D10 would be to A, challenge that and also challenge the, the made in China strategy which is essentially, the Chinese government are very explicit about this, which is a plan for China to basically achieve dominance in all of the industries of the future. The idea is that, you know, in all these big tech challenges, these democratic countries should cooperate to act as a kind of counter to China. And I think it's a, a recognition that the Chinese state is very good at pumping huge amounts of money into R&D projects, to making technological breakthroughs. It has uh, fewer ethical constraints about some things around artificial intelligence and the like. And the theory is that if the democratic world doesn't get together on this stuff, then China is going to reach that dominant position in these industries of the future. And these are industries that will, that will, that will shape the 21st century as surely as the railroad shaped the 19th century. And Oliver, you see that as well in China with this Made in China 2025 policy where it's all about world leadership in high-tech sectors. Do you think something like a D10 would be a sensible precaution in your words? Well, I think it'd be perfectly sensible for the countries that James talks about and indeed others to cooperate in ensuring that we have multipolar technological positions and not just the whole of the technologies of the future dominated by one country, certainly not by China. Well, I, I think actually the Chinese would perfectly well recognise that that's a reasonable thing for everyone else to do. I think within that, the UK itself should seek to achieve a technical superiority in as many fields as possible. For example, I think we stand a chance at the moment of being world leaders in battery technology and electric vehicles. 
I don't think we should concede these industries for a second. We should seek to be not only resilient and not overly dependent on anyone, but also to have leadership in basic science and in applied science and in technology in as many spheres as possible. That's a good thing for the UK to do. And it's completely compatible with having a sensible grown-up relationship in which we seek to resolve tensions and not insist on Western hegemony at the same time as we resist any idea of a Chinese hegemony. We don't want a world of hegemonies. We want a world of resolutions and diplomacies and sensible rules that can be sensibly applied and mutually recognized. And that's the way our children and grandchildren might end up by being safe and prosperous. On that optimistic multipolar note, (laughs) Oliver and James, thanks very much. The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Try a month in print and online for free. And for a limited time only, get a free wireless phone charger. Go to www.spectator.co.uk forward slash charger to start today. Next, as I record, Dominic Cummings has dominated headlines for almost a week. Though he is still in position, Katie Balls writes in this week's political column about the long-term damage that this whole affair may have had on the government. She joins me now, together with Paul Goodman, editor of Conservative Home and former Tory MP. So Katie, how secure do you think Dominic Cummings' position is at the moment? Look, I think it's hard to say anyone is 100% secure, but I think what the past few days have shown and confirmed is that number 10 has no plans to give up Dominic Cummings without a fight and is prepared to put up with a lot of uh, people being very unhappy including voters for at least a, a brief period in order to keep him in position so I think that there are still a few things that could change the picture if more details of the story were to come out which contradicted various accounts that could change the picture and I also just think you do have to keep an eye on public opinion there's been the first set of bad polls I I don't think that's enough in itself to undermine that person's position but we know this is government by focus group in terms of how they approach things so let's see how things look in the coming weeks and months but I think for now you ultimately have a number 10 that decided to face down its MPs and in terms of the Tory rebellion it comes and goes it'd be interesting to hear Paul's thoughts on this but I think the the number who have actually called for him to go is lower than the number who have publicly said they are unhappy. And I think what's quite telling is Tory MPs putting out these statements, which, you know, we don't like what he did, but not actually saying that Dominic Cummings should go. And what I keep hearing from Tory MPs who are, by all accounts, furious, is that they almost feel as though they've taken the political hit now. So why not just keep him on? If it gets worse, I think that could change. But I would say, broadly speaking, I think that, if this story starts to die, Dominic Cummings is safe. Paul, what have you made of the whole affair? I've only one gloss to add on Katie's comprehensive summary, which is that don't exclude the possibility that he may voluntarily go. I think it's extraordinarily unlikely, but possible. And my reasoning is this, that he wouldn't have given that press conference, which was an extraordinary thing to do, if he'd not seen polling and research indicating that the government has been damaged by this, the Conservative Party has been damaged by by extension. 
Therefore, if he felt sufficiently moved to give the press conference, you can't be sure if the polls are still dire in a week, a fortnight, that he might just suddenly go. I'm not sure at this stage that would solve anything. I think if he'd gone on day one, that would be a a different matter. But you've got to bear that in mind. The latest uh, Barnard Castle policing development, I think that gives it a little bit more life, but probably not enough to get the story blazing back up in the stratosphere. And as you said, we better rule hope, or uh, Dominic Cummings better hope anyway, he's not forgotten any detail in his stories, such as a motorway cafe stop that for some reason may have slipped his mind. Paul, why do you think that Boris Johnson has staked so much political capital on Dominic Cummings? Before this happened, we always thought that Dominic Cummings might be a human shield at some point when an unpopular policy has to be pushed through. But obviously, it seems like Boris Johnson's tying himself with him. First of all, this is just at the very lowest common denominator observation. Uh, Were Dominic Cummings to go, he will know where all the bodies are buried and it might not be Dominic Cummings's way to leave those bodies quietly unburied. It might be more his way to start digging them up and begin to wave bones and bits of skeleton around. But I think the fundamental reason is is bigger. I knew when Boris called Dominic Cummings in after he became Prime Minister that he was really serious about winning general election and delivering Brexit because Cummings has got the flair and the discipline and the feral intelligence to drive it. And if he loses that, uh, he loses something at the heart of the operation. Of course, it's repairable, and there'll be other ways of configuring Downing Street, but Cummings is extraordinarily important to him. Without him, uh, he wouldn't have devised the whole strategy that led him to the general election last year in which he won a near landslide. Katie, now there are concerns and questions being raised that Boris Johnson might not be able to govern by himself without Dominic Cummings. How damaging are those, you know, even those speculations, the fact that they're flying around is to the government? Well, I think this is not just a story about Dominic Cummings. I think it's quite clear as it's moved on, it's now a story or an issue of Boris Johnson's authority and his government in general. And I think that What's interesting is as it has gone on, because Number 10 has staked so much on keeping Dominic Cummings in place. I mean, I think if we just roll back slightly and just refresh our memories on the steps they've taken over the past couple of days to shore up his position. Now, let's remember when Robert Jenrick was accused of breaching lockdown by driving to his parents' house. It was to drop off supplies. Now, he did stay in position. And I think there was a quote in a, a lobby briefing saying, you know, we, we don't think he's done anything wrong. But he didn't have the Prime Minister chair two press conferences, which he doesn't do so often, uh, where he offered his personal backing, as in the case of Dominic Cummings. He didn't get to give a press conference in the Rose Garden of Number 10. Now, you could say there is less of a furore, but I think just the steps in the sense to have a government advisor giving a press conference is extraordinary. I think the setting too, you know, you have the power of Downing Street behind it. You also didn't have an orchestrated campaign, actually several orchestrated campaigns by the whips to get ministers and MPs to tweet supportively. And I think all these things and the fact that we've now had countless media rounds where cabinet ministers are having to spend the bulk of the interview defending Dominic Cummings and sticking to a line that I think privately some of them don't necessarily completely agree with, is a sign of how much political capital Number 10 has chosen to spend on this. So 
partly as a result of that, partly because everyone already thought that Dominic Cummings was crucial, as Paul has laid out to the governing of a number 10, means that for Dominic Cummings to now go, I think would be in, in many ways very damaging to Boris Johnson. It has become a point where I was speaking to ministers who don't particularly enjoy the power that Dominic Cummings has, but thinks because of the past few days, it would now be incredibly damaging to the authority of the Prime Minister were Dominic Cummings to be pushed out. So I think it has moved on just being a story about what a senior advisor did on a trip to what it means for Boris Johnson's command of his party, also his general authority in terms of the country. Paul, about that backbench opposition to Dominic Cummings, and also even some cabinet ministers off the record would be expressing disquiet about this whole thing. Even though Dominic Cummings is still in position as we record, do you think that's a disquiet that could bubble up in the future? And how problematic is it that there's this tension there? I think you've got to pan the camera back and actually think about what it's like to govern in 2020 under these conditions with a majority of 80. If you look at the history of the last 50 years, the backbenches of, of both the parties, main parties when they're in government, have become more and more and more rebellious. So majority of 80, it really isn't what it was. Uh, and it looked in the aftermath of the general election as though this would really be plenty for the time being. But the uh, nerve of, of Tory MPs these days in this culture with social media, with the kind of scenes you've seen outside Dominic Cummings' house, with memories of expenses. (laughs) The culture really is very fragile. I'm going to give you two examples. One, what's at the heart of the government's coronavirus strategy? Protecting the NHS. Boris Johnson company know that if the NHS collapsed, they'd be out. Forget the majority of 80. There'd be a mass stampede on the Tory backbenches if we saw on our TVs the kind of scenes that were broadcast from Italy. Next, the economy. If you talk to the Treasury, uh, the Treasury are dismayed at how, as soon as the crisis emerged, Conservative MPs put aside all the small state, free market, uh, (laughs) tax-cutting rhetoric that you usually hear from them, and clamoured for more government money. I think it's taken the Treasury a while to get used to this. So if you think forward... The situation really is very difficult, and it's made more difficult, finally, by the emergence of the WhatsApp group. <laughs> and here's a phenomenon the whips can't control, because the WhatsApp groups are rather as though you're on a happy backbencher. You walked around Westminster all day, and the only other people you met were other unhappy backbenchers, not the sort of grandees of the 1922 committee who can calm you down, or the old boys and girls who've seen it all before or the uh, senior staff or whatever they're in these whatsapp groups getting whipped up into a lather particularly if they're coming under fire in a way that they haven't before and to some of them particularly the new ones really they're not used to this mass of emails and it's 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 very difficult for them it's kind of as though you know they're these characters, you know, what a lovely war, who, you know, I'll make a man of any one of you. They all sign up with great enthusiasm and suddenly the gunfire's exploding round <laughs> their head and some of them have found it a very frightening experience. So I think looking forward, majority of 80 in these times, looking back at the last five years, you know, David Cameron come and gone, Theresa May, history, Jeremy Corbyn out 
there's been so much change, I think it's really difficult for the whips and powers that be. I think what's interesting too is, I mean, the whips have found it very difficult to whip a remote party. And actually part of the reason next week when Parliament returns, it will be a physical Parliament where whether or not MPs are allowed to vote through the division lobbies, they are supposed to be in Parliament, is because... uh, there is a sense in government it'll be easier to collect intelligent, work out who's thinking what. But what's funny with all this is every time I speak to an unhappy MP, which I think are not too hard to find, they seem to think it really serves their interest to go back to a parliament that's physical because they think they can throw their weight around, they think it'll be easier to you know, get access to the people they need to lobby and they think the members' tea room is going to be crucial to stoking discontent about various issues where there is growing annoyance. So I'm not sure it is going to work out exactly how figures in government believe it will but it just does go back to the sense I think when you had a majority of 80 and I think I was guilty of this to a degree because it was obviously so much larger again this sounds very basic statement than what we'd had in the sense of the hung parliament it felt as though we were entering a period where we'd have a fairly stable government ultimately vote leave of which there are many of whom in number 10 could run Downing Street in a way which is much more centralised. They wouldn't need to do the things that they hate doing, which is nurturing the parliamentary party. But actually, as time has gone on, I think as Paul has explained really well, it just is the case that Majority 80 just isn't actually that big. And there are still lots of problems, as you can see, with various issues on Huawei. But I think going back to Dominic Cummings, even though we are getting more unhappy MPs, I don't quite get the sense yet that any of the rebels can quite work out how to get a Tory MP rebellion to oust Cummings yet. There's an interesting question about whether Cummings' wings will be clipped as a result of Mm. what's happened Of course, it's been true ever since Tony Blair, I suppose, that Downing Street has become increasingly centralised and increasingly big. And Dominic Cummings and his crew, they've really rather been like kind of, you know, Nick Timothy and Fiona Hill doubled or squared in the way that they've they've, they've tried to take power to the centre and wield it through cabinet ministers who they say are chosen on the basis of competence, but frankly, in some cases, I think are chosen on the basis of compliance. We have to see where all that goes. I mean, it may be the case that uh, there's now a bit of a sort of ministerial you know, fight back, and that in ways we can't see. Mark Sedwell and the civil service machine hedge Cummings in a bit. But if he survives, and if all this quiets down, I mean, just... Don't underestimate his, you know, hunger for power and authority and for getting things done and for pushing the vote leave agenda. I mean, I'm very struck, Katie, whenever you talk to these people, they always talk about vote leave. You know, they don't say the Conservative Party or the government, mm. but vote leave thinks. They still think of themselves as a kind of movement within within the government. It will take kind of a lot to lot to dislodge that. I think it's in the third Lord of the Rings film, isn't it? The, the dwarf Gimli says, behind his fastnesses, our enemy is regrouping, referring to the dark lord, uh, Sauron in Mordor, kind of gathering his strength. And, you know, Cummings will wait, sit this out, try to ride out the trouble and re-establish his grip. Yeah, and just on that, I mean, if you look at number 10... It is full of Dominic Cummings' allies, many of whom did work on vote leave. And I think they all have a, a incredibly strong loyalty to each other. You have people who are not part of the vote leave clique in the sense they and they 
do feel as though they, no matter what they do, they will never be in their inner circle. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think that does run through. One of the things I say in the politics column is actually touching on the point of how do cabinet ministers respond to this is while you have Tory MPs who are annoyed and, and in a way, I think, taking more to public statements, I do get the sense that ministers are working out how they can move the situation to their advantage. So, uh, for example, I've heard ministers talk about the fact that this this should be the point where you stop treating Dominic Cummings as some high profit and start seeing him as an advisor. Another said to me that they don't think he will have the same authority when he's, um, you know, commanding people to do things. And I also think that a side issue is I think those cabinet ministers who want a faster loosening of the lockdown see this as an opportune time to talk about a change in the language around social distancing guidance. You you could say, for example, that now is a time for more clarity. So let's change the, um, the emphasis from what you can't do to this idea that you can do most things unless we tell you otherwise. So there's an opportunity there. But I think just in terms of does this mean his wings are clipped, I think the the problem with the ministers who believe that this should be what happens is, and Paul will know this better than me, it doesn't strike me that Dominic Cummings' style is to be a reduced power base in terms of this. And again, he is surrounded in number 10 by his close colleagues who all share a similar view. So I don't quite see yet how you marginalise the number 10 machine but I think there definitely will be efforts to do so in in the coming weeks and months Katie and Paul, thanks very much The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority Try a month in print and online for free and for a limited time only get a free wireless phone charger Go to www.spectator.co.uk forward slash charger to start today. And last, this lovely weather and the lockdown has brought Melissa Kite's neighbours out into their gardens to work from home. Melissa now knows the ins and outs of all that's happening in their companies. So what is the etiquette for dealing with noisy neighbours in lockdown? Melissa joins me now together with Mary Killen, our dear Mary economist, who can give us some advice. So Melissa, can you start by telling us about your battles with your neighbours because of working from home? Well, I wouldn't say battles, I'm engaged in battle. I've just basically kind of, I'm running away from it at the minute because it just terrifies me. But um, every morning I sort of come out onto my patio and I I, um, find that either side or both have started working from home from about 8am onwards. And what I liken it to is, it's it's a lovely idea working from home, isn't it? And I must declare from the onset that I've been working from home uh, working for this wonderful magazine and other publications for 10 years or so. And so I'm, you know, I'm very happy with it. But it doesn't really work very well if everyone does it. And I liken it to, for example, you know, getting the bus. It's a great idea, isn't it, if we if we all get the bus and, and we all use public transport and, and we get out of our cars. The problem would be is if everybody in the country went out and got the bus tomorrow, the system would kind of grind to a halt. And the problem we've got, if everybody in the country starts working from home permanently, 
we are going to come to a bit of an impasse. And obviously the sun's out and it's a fantastic summer so far and people are basically working on their patios. So my kind of question is, how long is this going to go on for? And if we all work on our patios, what's the etiquette? I think we're all just kind of learning, you know, this is a new thing. And my piece basically makes the point that the first one out there basically work from their patio everybody else you know we can't all do it at once and um you know a couple of times that it's happened that two or three neighbors have been working all at the same time i mean i'm so blunt and scared of telling anyone anything about myself i've got the door shut but then i suppose they'll all be reading about it in the magazine so i don't know why i'm worried but I just got a, <laughs> i've got a horror of going out there and sort of sitting on my patio and doing this podcast i don't know uh, so anyway this is all new and i don't know what the etiquette is and um so i'm throwing it out there what is the etiquette when everybody's sat in their gardens trying to have trying to do conference calling mary this is what we have you for well i think that although it's a nice idea everyone working from home it's like socialism it doesn't take account of human nature which is that people want to be showing off when they're in the office that's why you have offices because people like to be seen to be working otherwise it doesn't seem real and this is why people are sort of yelling when they're on their um, zoom calls and everything because they say look I'm working I'm working (laughs) they want somebody to notice them working and so I think although Mark Zuckerberg and everyone says oh you know, you'll all be working remotely in the next decade. No, we won't, because human nature is that we want to be with other people. We want the fresh persona that the office workspace gives us. We can get away from ourselves. And I think the novelty will soon die out, because after all, it's only linked to the good weather, isn't it, that we've all enjoyed uh, lockdown so much. If it was bad weather, it'd be quite a different story. No, I completely agree with that, Mary. Melissa, you say that if this lasts for much longer, it will need to be regulated. What did you have in mind? Well, I make the point in my piece that we've not just lost our offices at the minute, we've lost our homes. So if you you work from home, you not only don't have an office, you don't have a home. Um, Your home is somewhere you go to get away from your office. And, you know, there's a very good reason why if I applied... (laughs) to run a sort of growing business out of my back garden, the local council would probably say no. And, you know, so I think if this goes on and Mark Zuckerberg has said that he would like half his workforce to be remote, and by the way, on less pay, because of course the boss class love the idea they haven't got a rent office space, or at least as much office space for so many people, then the amount of people who are going to be at home are going to, it's going to beg the question, well, especially in the summer, what is the regulation for the fact that a corporation has half of its workforce in a residential space? I'd like to say, I was just thinking, I read Melissa's article with great enjoyment, and she's involuntarily eavesdropping on her neighbours discussing mergers and everything and I thought possibly she could pop her head over the fence or pleasantly say would you like me to put some music on because I feel a bit embarrassed about overhearing the commercially sensitive data I'm sure I shouldn't be overhearing it would you like me to put some music on (laughs) to drown it out (laughs) 
That might stop them. One thing I think Clap for Carers has been good about because it gives you a chance to, you know, while you're all clapping in a good-natured way, you can say these things to your neighbours that would otherwise seem provocative. But you can just say them as kind of asides. Oh, by the way, I'm a bit worried that I might be eavesdropping on commercially sensitive data. Do you want me to put the music on next time you're on a call? And then the person will think, oh, God, I didn't know she could hear that. I better do it inside in future. And also, of course, the weather will change and then nobody will be in their garden. I'm going to take a take note of what you know you, you said and I'm going to sort of think about, I think it's fascinating, this question of what the correct etiquette is for looking over your fence, which I have a horror of. I quite like to sort of pretend that we can't, when we can't see each other over the fence but anyway one has to sort of come out of one's shell and engage with one's neighbours and say you know whatever it is whatever the form is going to be for I can hear you and all your secrets <laughs> well my husband and I have had to develop a um, now there's so many more people in their gardens we're also in a terrace but we've got a sort of rural um, thing and the other people are normally out during the day but they've been at home and so I've had to say to Giles a code which is let's go and watch the news when I suddenly realise the others are overhearing us arguing so I say let's go and watch the news and that's our code to go inside to finish the argument. Melissa and Mary thanks very much and that's it for this week. You can read all of the pieces discussed in the podcast this week in the magazine, as well as Anthony Horowitz's diary, Lionel Shriver on the importance of living with risk, and Dr Max Pemberton, who writes about the guilt he feels when we clap the NHS. Thanks for listening and join us again next week. The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Try a month in print and online for free. And, for a limited time only, get a free wireless phone charger. Go to www.spectator.co.uk forward slash charger to start today.